Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline's not joining us today, but check in in a week or two and she'll be back on the air. We have um, a guest I'm really excited about today and a book that was really interesting for me to read Um and, and you'll see why as we talk about it. Our guest is E.M. Tron. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. That's, okay. Most people say Tran, but actually the Vietnamese pronunciation is Chun. Chun. Okay. Yes. E.M. Chun, Daughters mm-hmm. of the New Year is the title of her book. And E.M. is a Vietnamese-American writer from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is where this book is set, partially. Her stories, essays, and reviews can be found in many places, including the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Harvard Review Online. Her essay for Prairie Schooner won their summer nonfiction prize, and she had um, uh, she received a Glenna Luce Award and was listed as a notable essay in the Best American Essays 2018. She completed her MFA at the University of Mississippi and a PhD in creative writing at Ohio University. And welcome to Writer's Voices, EM. Um, thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. <laughs> so is this your first published novel? Yes, it is. Um, I wrote one other before that I haven't, <laughs> still looking for a home. <laughs> um, and, but this is my first, you know, published, it's my debut. So it's very exciting for me. Oh, definitely. And it's gotten a lot of attention for a debut. I mean, you must just be blown away. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, on publication day, I actually was like completely overwhelmed with, you know, I, I, cause I have no context for it and I had no expectations as well. Um, So on publication day, actually the New York times review uh, came out on the day of publication. So it was like, not only was it being published that day, but like I was getting barraged with all this amazing news about the New York times and, um, so it's been very, very exciting and super humbling because I, you know, you write a book and you think that no one's going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> like what uh, happened with it, your first book? <laughs> yeah, yes. And so when people do read it, you're just like, wow, this is incredible. So it's been really great. Oh, wonderful. And how much of this book, well, let's let's just talk about kind of what the Daughters of the New Year is about. It's about um, an immigrant family that fled from Vietnam when South when Saigon fell in the 1970s. And I remember that. I'm old enough to actually remember that. And came to the United States, settled in New Orleans. But it's yes. more than that. So. so. <laughs> yeah, yes. So, um you're right. It's kind of hard to explain because of the way that the book is structured and the kind of episodic nature of each chapter. Um, and the scope of it is quite large as well. So it, it starts in 2016, uh, pretty much present day, uh, New Orleans. Well, really, it starts in Vietnam. But in the U.S., the first part of the book is in the U.S. in New Orleans. Um, and as you go further into the book, each chapter moves backwards in time. So we go farther and farther back. Um, and it follows a Vietnamese-American family in New Orleans, like I mentioned, and it focuses on the mother, Swan, and her three daughters, Track, Nhi, and Ju. And as you move 
backwards in the timeline, we see the characters live through major historic events like Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, the fall of Saigon. Um, and then also alongside those big events, we see them go through major personal events like the loss of a parent or being bullied at school. Um, and then as you move farther and farther back, we meet grandmothers and great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers <laughs> and so on and so forth until finally um, we end with these Vietnamese woman warriors, uh, Lady True and the Trung sisters, uh, who were um, the original kind of inspiration, the impetus for my writing of the book. Well, tell us a little bit more about that because I didn't – I'm not familiar with those characters but sure you must be <laughs> yes yes so um the Chung sisters and lady true are two separate um mythological like not mythological they're actually historic figures um and but they're from two separate times so the Chung sisters are from around 40 ad and lady true is from around uh 226 to 248 AD. And um, I, when I was doing my PhD, I was, uh, my focus was in Asian American literature uh, with a specific focus in Vietnamese American uh, literature and diasporic literatures. And so when I was looking, you know, when I was reading about the history of Vietnam, I kept coming across these women and I was really interested in them because Vietnam uh kind of has, it has historically been male-centered and values a kind of inflexible masculinity. And I just thought it was so interesting that some of the few national, celebrated national figures were these women and that they're so famous that, you know, in this, in Vietnam, that their history, because they're from so long ago, has become kind of mythologized and it bleeds into fiction a little bit. And so that was also part of the project of the book was thinking about how fact and fiction bleed into each other. And also, especially when we think about family histories, how memory and fact and fiction all kind of become conflated. So that I was interested in the women the Lady True and the Trunk Sisters to explore that idea, but also just separately from that, I was like, you know, like, I just wanted to create an alternative narrative, an alternative history where women were the center of this Vietnamese narrative. And it all kind of came back, it kept coming back to me to these women warriors, these, these celebrated mythologized figures um, who were not only women, but like warriors, right? Like it's not just that they were in these traditional domestic spaces, but that they were fighting, that they were these really strong, um, active figures who had agency over their lives. So that that's kind of why I was writing about them. But um, to, to go back to your original question, who are these women? The Trump sisters <laughs> uh, were uh, the, these women, I guess actually they're kind of in the same narrative. Lady True and the Trump sisters were both um, women who led revolts uh, and rebellions against outside invaders, uh, notably the Chinese, but I, I mean, roughly the Chinese, because if we go that far back in time, it's, you know, the, the, the country uh, borders are a little bit blurrier, but um, again, they were, they led these rebellions, they led these men into battle against um, 
uh, Chinese invaders and conquerors. And they're often used in communist narratives about kind of national purity or this like idyllic Vietnamese uh, culture. Um, but I, I wanted to repurpose them and think about, you know, be, beyond that political motive, what, who they were as women and humanize them in the narrative as we, you know, as we see their perspective um, later on in the book. Now, was there, um, did they appear earlier in the book? Because there were some sort of um, supernatural characters. Yes. So in a broader sense, they do. I mean, I guess you could say, I would say that they're one-to-one, like there's a ghost that appears and it is Lady Drew. Although you could say that. Um, But (laughs) the ghost, so there are ghosts, just for any readers who have read it. There are ghosts. Um, and they show up periodically, you know, intermittently throughout the narrative. And, you know, as our characters live their lives, there's these kinds of supernatural appearances. There's these mysterious women and, and young girls that come and go and they disappear. Um, and I, I did envision them as being Lady True and the Trump sisters, but more more accurately, I think that the ghost women are this kind of encapsulation of like all, like this history of women that continue, like this lineage of women that continue to survive and refuse to be forgotten. So, yes. Yes and no. They are <laughs> Lady True and the Trump sisters, but also they're everyone else. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, the first chapter you start with, is it Ni? How do you, how do you pronounce her name? Yes. Okay. Me, yeah, and honestly, you could have written a whole book just about her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you kind of leave us hanging a little bit with her story. Are are we going? Are, are you going to do something about that in the future? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, you know, so one of the projects of the book, and this can be very frustrating for readers, (laughs) because I think that when you read a traditionally structured narrative, you, you know, you have a character or a set of characters, and there is some kind of inciting incident that creates consequence, and it moves you forward through time. And we often think about forward progress as moving into the future, right? When we think about the past, we think about regressiveness or, you know, we're stuck in the past or medievalness, right? And so one of the one of the reasons that I was really interested in making sure that the narrative went backwards was because I wanted to subvert that. And I wanted to continue making the past. I wanted to make the past the present each time you were reading, you know, you were going backwards, if that makes sense. Right. So, when and part and why I wanted to do that was because I was thinking about you know my family and it, really anyone's family not just mine or any you know it could be immigrant families but really just anyone's family and you think about sure we know the we know our parents to a certain extent maybe you know not as in a certain way we know our parents we maybe remember our grandparents our great grandparents sometimes but the further back in time you go the more that person disappears. And like, if I were to ask you who your great, 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 great grandmother was, you probably couldn't tell me. I mean, very few people could. (laughs) No, no, I couldn't. (laughs) Yes. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to reverse 
where the center of importance was. Like rather than thinking about, okay, yes, me, Jack and Chu are important characters and that we're, we meet them in the present in 2016. And they're the closest to our experience that we know because we're familiar with the time period. But as you go backwards, they kind of slowly disappear as they regress in age. And eventually they completely disappear as you go into the past and you meet um, the grandmothers and the great grandmothers. And that was purposeful because I wanted to, I wanted to recreate what happens when we, what we experience when we go into the future. We forget the people in the past and I wanted to reverse it and instead remember the people in the past and kind of forget about the people in the future. Um, and that's frustrating for a reader, I know, but it's part of the kind of ideological and uh, artistic uh, venture of the book. And I hope that, you know, we can, I also, part of it is like, I wrote about me at this reality show because one, I wanted to write about a fake reality show because I love them. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I kind of feel like the the outcome of the show is like we all know, we all kind of know what happens, right? It's the same narrative in real life when we watch a reality show. And so I wanted to, like, to me, that wasn't the interesting part of the book. I was more interested in understanding, like, how did he come to be on a show like this? How does a, a show like this continue to crop up over and over again throughout history? Mm. Yeah. But also it just, well, you know, the, the ghost that she sees, I'm just very, very curious about her and how seeing that affected her. And, and, um, so we don't get that, but I, but I understand now what you were, what you were trying to do. And it uh, obviously worked very, it was very effective. And, um, thank you. When you wrote this, did you write it in that? (laughs) Did you write it in reverse chronological order? (laughs) Yes. So I did actually, (laughs) I did write it in reverse chronological order. And um, just like my readers, I also found it very frustrating to write it backwards. (laughs) Um, But I had to get very comfortable with um, like with what a narrative could look like. Like I feel like we're, especially with all of the TV that we watch or movies or, you know, I mean, books I think are a little bit more experimental in that way. But I think we're kind of conditioned to expect certain things from a story. And so when I was writing it, it, I felt kind of insecure about that because it was going backwards in time. And I had to get really comfortable with just accepting that this is what the story was going to look like. Um, And I, and I started it this way because I actually read, um, you mentioned how the Garcia girls lost their accents. That was one of the inspiring books. I'd read it. Um, I was doing my exams for my PhD and that was one of the books that I had to read. And when I read how the Garcia girls lost their accents, uh, it was, you know, it was a backwards moving narrative. And when I finished it, I just felt like everything really clicked into place. And I just, I had never read a book like that before. And the structure of it made so much sense to me. Uh, The, I felt like the writer was more interested in what was happening in the past and and not just what was happening in the past, but how that would affect a present narrative. We start in the present and we move backwards. It, you know, the question would that might be asked is like, why not just start it in the past and move it forward? Well, because the structure of the narrative is really interested in understanding how that past 
puts pressure on what we know happens in the present. So I was just, I, I felt, I had never felt an epiphany like that before, but when I finished reading the book, I was just like, oh my God, I have to structure my book like this. So I started writing it from the start that way. And uh, to be completely honest, it, it was difficult. I had a hard time with it. Uh, I had to get really comfortable with it. And then also in revision, uh, the backwards moving <laughs> narrative made the revision very difficult. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I bet. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is E.M. Chan, daughter, uh, author of Daughters of the New Year. So how much of this family history is yours? I would say um, that it's a lot of the experiences are, like, things that I have gone through, but... Um, you know, maybe might be boring in real life. <laughs> um, that I, you know, that I fictionalized. I've added more conflict. I've added characters, or I changed what happened in the end um, just to increase tension. Um, but uh, really, what the inspiration that's direct from life, or maybe the emotions that I felt having, you know, grown up in a similar community, um, and just putting those emotions in fictionalized scenarios that I've made up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like, you know, a lot of people ask me like, is this your family? Because I have, obviously I have a mom, but I also have two older sisters. So we have the same kind of family structure as in the book. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like what I like to say is like, really the truth is that all of the characters are really some version of me or some projection of my anxieties or my experiences, but also like, Maybe it's a version, if it were a version of my sister or my sisters, then it would be like that, but turned up to a thousand, like increasing the intensity of, <laughs> of who those people are. Um, and, so, and do your yeah. sisters, what do they think about it? My sisters have read the book and they, you know, I was very nervous to share it with them because I thought that they would, you know, but because of course all of our experiences growing up have been different. Um, but they really enjoyed it. They, they know that it's fictionalized. I mean, my, my sisters are not on a reality television show, <laughs> nor are they, you know, in the closet or lawyers. Um, but I, I, I think that they saw a lot, they recognized a lot in their own experiences and how they may have felt growing up or maybe how they felt towards our parents. And I think that that was, it was really valuable for me to hear them talk about it. And it was really touching. So yes, they've read it and they, they're okay with it. <laughs> well, that's good. Now there, there are two kind of, um, there's one theme that I want to talk about that are actually two that, that kind of run through multiple generations. And then there's the one that's really the, the uh, current generation. So let's start with that. And that is the conflict between being Americanized and holding on to your, the culture of your parents. And that really was a big conflict for these three sisters, seemingly more so than, than other Vietnamese in their community. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm curious about why you, why you made them so Americanized that they felt ostracized from the rest of their community. Um, you know, I was, well, first of all, I think that, I don't think it's necessarily that they feel the pressure of, um, 
tradition versus, you know, mainstream American culture more so than perhaps other people in their community. I think every, if we were to tell the story from the perspective of someone um, who is part of the Vietnamese community, right? So maybe someone who had bullied uh, the characters of the book or something like that. I think that those narratives too would feel that pressure just the same. Mm. Um, This kind of uh, loyalty to traditional Vietnamese values and um, you know, being an American kid or being an American woman or, or husband or whatever. So I think that it's it's not necessarily that they don't. It's just a, a question of of difference of experience, right? Um, and the other thing is that I wanted to create specifically. I wanted the the family to be outside of the community because I've read a lot of. Um, Vietnamese, or not Vietnamese, sorry, of immigrant uh, stories, where I think we have a lot of them, where, of course, there's always that pressure, okay, I'm, you know, I'm in America now, I'm part of this immigrant community, and I feel the pressure to, you know, preserve these traditions of my culture, or to be a part of um, this American life. And, but, a lot of times I think that the immigrant community is also often a place of refuge for, for these characters. Um, uh, in particular, for example, I'm thinking of um, the famous work by Amy Tan, uh, the Joy Luck Club. And mm, a lot mm-hmm. of times they, they feel that pressure, but they do still find some solace or belonging in that community um, in the in San Francisco Chinatown. And you can find this in a lot uh, of different uh, immigrant narratives. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted the characters to, you know, I wanted the reader to ask what happens when this, when the characters aren't accepted fully in either, right? When they don't, when they don't have a place of refuge and they kind of have to create their own, uh, their own way outside of it. Um, and so it was really, I'm really interested in thinking about in-between spaces and making those in-between spaces really extreme. Mm. Well, one of the other kind of continuing themes from across generations um, is the um, astrology. Yes. Um, And the title of the book, Daughters of the New Year, is, um, I think, alludes to that. And I wasn't aware before reading this that, that there was maybe a whole separate um, astrological or horoscope belief system in Vietnam, um, mm-hmm. in the Vietnamese culture. I'm, I'm familiar with a couple of different ones, the um, Indian, you know, the um, Jyotish, it's called, for in India, mm-hmm. and then the Chinese. And it seems like the Vietnamese is more similar to the Chinese system. So do, would you want to tell us a little bit about it and how it shows up in your book? Yeah, sure. Um, so the the Vietnamese zodiac is, is actually, it is very similar to the Chinese. And I think that um, a lot of Eastern and Southeast Asian cultures share a lot of similarities with um, the zodiac, uh, the their particular, you know, regional zodiacs. Um, but of course, there's divergences based on, you know, how each culture developed separately. But so for example, the Chinese zodiac has the year of the rabbit, but the Vietnamese 
uh, Zodiac has Year of the Cat in, the, in that year instead. Um, so they're just small differences like that. But basically, I, I, was, I wanted um, the Zodiac to show up because in my own life, my mother really puts a lot of stock in the Zodiac. And so I grew up hearing a lot about it. And, you know, every year my mom still sends me um, an email with, uh, with like, you know, good directions for me to walk in for my sign and, um, you know, what colors I should wear and things like that. And so when I was younger, I always thought, I, I kind of scoffed at it and was like, this is, you know, this is all just made up storytelling. Um, but as I get older, you know, I, and I can't say whether or not I fully believe in it now, because I don't know if I do. <laughs> I think just like everyone else, I, I like check my horoscope every day and I'm like, this is fake and made up, but I'm still like, Oh, today my co-star app tells me that cancers are, should do this, this, and this. So, you know, I'd like to think that I'm, uh, I, I'm above it somehow, but I'm really not. Um, and I think that I, I was writing characters that were interested in this because um, Swan, so the mother figure in the beginning of this book, is she uses it as a way to hang on to a culture that she feels very far away from. Um, you know, she's she left Vietnam and she lives in New Orleans now, and it's it's like engaging in this act of culture when she feels very displaced. Which she kind of rejected when she was a child and her mother was trying to tell her these things. She sort of rejected it then, but then she really became more enamored with it as an adult. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, And she also, you know, having so much in her life that has gone, uh, you know, has not gone according to plan. (laughs) You know, like she is, she never, for the life of her, I think many people who our refugees have to and have to leave their home, uh, especially when they're older, right? When they're in their twenties or their thirties, um, when they have to leave their home, that they you never expect that you have to do that, right? Right. Um, and, and so I think there's a lot in her life that feels out of control, and the zodiac is one way to feel like you have control over something, right? That you can check this thing each year that says if you wear this color you can you can keep bad luck away or something like that. So I think for her, the Zodiac is really important to hold on to culture and to also uh, create this semblance of control in her life when she's had very little. And in a practical sense, in writing the book, the Zodiac was really helpful for me in thinking of how to differentiate the characters. Um, and it's not to say that each character fulfills the stereotypes of each of their signs perfectly, but really it was there as um, a standard by which the characters either fulfilled or didn't fulfill the characteristics mm, of their sign. Right. Now, within the Zodiac, it's like everyone born during a certain year, which is not, the year's not the same as the Western year, right? No, right. no, no, no. So. But everyone born within that year is the same sign, but there's differences based on the element. And is that based on the date they were born to? Um, yes. So the everyone that is born in a particular year is the same sign and element. So, for example, oh, okay. everyone born in the year of 1989 is an earth snake. Okay. Um, yes. So – and – 
there's five elements. And uh, so year of the earth snake in 1989, you won't have another year of the earth snake until 60 years later. So there's a cycle of 60 years. Okay. Um, but it really helps with like, it, you know, if you think about like the differences between an earth snake and a water snake or a metal snake, um, it really helps to think about, uh, you know, how each sign is different. You know, they're not all the same. And for me, it was more, it was, it was really less about like saying, okay, all earth snakes are like this, or sorry, all the characters in the book are a dragon tiger or a goat. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, it it was less about saying like, okay, all dragons are like this and, and more, and more creating tension and conflict in the story for that particular character. Mm. Um, like Chu is a dragon and she feels that she doesn't live up to this kind of expectation of what a dragon should be. And her parents have really high hopes for her. And so this creates a conflict in her narrative about um, who she is and, you know, and whether or not she's accomplishing enough in her life. So, um, and, and, you know, beyond that too, the expectations that Swan has for her children and what you're supposed to do as a tiger or dragon or goat, um, that too creates conflict. So, um, the zodiac appears in that way, but you know, as we move farther back, that that conflict kind of disappears, and it becomes more um, about uh, it becomes a little bit more mystical, you know, as, as you go into farther and farther back in the narrative, and um, it becomes less about being an American or being a traditional, uh, you know, dragon, and more about just like it it's becomes a more natural part of their daily lives. I think as you go farther back. The thing that always puzzled me a little bit about the um, Zodiac, the Chinese or Vietnamese Zodiac is, you know, it's like, well, why would everybody in this who was born in the same year have the same um, kind of personality or, or, you know, why would they have those similarities? It didn't make sense. But in some ways it does because people I know who are teachers will talk about how different the different classes different years are you know the the class they have one year will have a lot of people a lot of kids that act out and the next year they'll all be really well behaved or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there is something yeah. to it <laughs> yeah no we'll see we're of the same mind i'm like on the one hand i'm like this is made up right and then yeah. on the other hand i'm like well <laughs> yeah no definitely um, but you know, part, like for me, I think it's also, I'm of a similar mind with my character Swan in that, like, it's less about for me feeling like I need to, you know, understand or fulfill these, these stereotypes of each year and, and more, it feels like when I understand more about it, or if I'm, you know, reading my yearly horoscope, it feels like I'm engaging in some part of my culture that would otherwise be lost unless I and others continue to do it. So, um, you know, I, I don't know, again, I don't know if I believe it, but it also feels like I, I should continue to at least understand the stories behind it um, to keep it alive. So this book that Swan gets every year to and pours through to, to learn these things that's like thousands of pages, is that, <laughs> does that still get published? Yes, that's a real thing. Oh, my. <laughs> Yes, and my mom actually does buy the the yearly 
like almanac and goes through it and there's a bunch of math involved I think and it has like star it, it has to do with like star positions as well I don't really fully understand it but um my mom does have this book and it has like bible thin pages wow um, very funny <laughs> You're yeah. listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is E.M. Chon, author of Daughters of the New Year. And um, I asked you earlier whether to call you E.M. Or, or Elizabeth, which is your given name. And I'm curious why you chose to use your initials in as your author name rather than Elizabeth. Um, well, I feel like I should have some very uh, thoughtful answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the truth is, is that I, I don't know. I just thought that I should have a pseudonym and that it was like very writerly for me to have an initial. And I don't know. Um, I think that part of it was my uh, motivation behind doing EM Tran was also that it was more gender neutral. Mm. Um, yeah. And I don't know, that really appealed to me to have, uh, to make it, more mysterious or more like you know outside of the kind of biases that we might have um when we approach something that is gendered um but i you know so i think that the answer really is that i thought it was it was cooler to have an initial name (laughs) (laughs) and your and your last name is spelled t-r-a-n so that's yes. for anyone who's looking for you, because I've been trying to pronounce it the way you told me it was in Vietnamese. I'm probably not getting it right, but. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, people just say Tran, but, um, it, and I do go by Tran uh, as my last name is pronounced, but um, in, in with Vietnamese, you know, with its accents and everything, the TR sound actually makes a ch, ch sound, like a CH sound. Um, and so. Uh, in Vietnamese, it's pronounced Jun. Jun. It okay. sounds like C-H-U-N. Okay. But um, I've gone by Tran all my life. Okay. So totally, okay. Totally fine to say yeah, Tran. <laughs> all right. Yeah, Vietnamese pronunciation is very tricky because I, I know there was, I think there was a character in your book his last name is N-G-U-Y-E-N, and I happen to know that's pronounced Win or something like that, which is not at all what it looks like on the written page. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and you know actually that's one of the major um anxieties of the characters and also that anxiety has been projected on them by me <laughs> I, I am uh, sure i am sure yeah because i'm not fluent in vietnamese and so my whole life i have every time i pronounce something it's always wrong <laughs> oh okay well then yeah. i don't feel so bad for getting it wrong <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely don't feel bad um but you know it's it's a very tricky language because it is um, tonal. And so you could say something slightly higher or slightly lower and it could mean a completely different word. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's, it's a very nuanced language that has a lot of double meaning. And when you get back into, you know, when you go back several generations into Vietnam and you're talking, there's a section where, where it's talking about the, um, the scholarliness of the culture and how how that got really suppressed by the French and and you know maybe in some sense really lost. How did you did you know this as a child growing up? Did you know this as part of your cultural history, or did you uh, find that in your research? You know, I really didn't know this growing up. Um, 
And that's one of the, also the major themes of the book is that like the characters in the present don't really understand um, some of the historical weight of, you know, their present moment, like why, why they are where they are in that day. And they don't really talk to their parents um, as I did not really talk to my parents about the history of Vietnam or the Vietnam War. Um, and I think part of that was like, it was very difficult for my parents to revisit that part of their lives, right? They've moved on to a new country. They've started new lives from scratch. And so I think it was very, um, you know, traumatizing for them to reopen and to be really vulnerable, right? Like it's very a very vulnerable thing to say, like, this is what happened to me and, and this was, you know, very difficult for me to go through. So, um, you know, I think that growing up, I don't, I didn't really understand what it was that my parents went through or I, and also, you know, going in school, like they don't really talk about the Vietnam War, at least when I went through school, it was like a, I remember being in an American history class my junior year and there was literally like one paragraph in a section of the 1960s and 70s about the Vietnam War. It was like very, very short. So I, I wasn't learning about it from my parents. I wasn't learning about it in my school curriculum. And I didn't really learn about it until I got to college and I took um, you know, a Vietnamese history class. And then when I did my master's and my PhD, I, I, I personally uh, went out and, and sought out that information. So um, it was, it's really fun for me to do the research actually because it feels like I'm uncovering a part of myself that I just didn't really know about and um, learning about a really, really um, a rich and troubled and tumultuous history of a country where I come from. So, um, yeah. Have you had the opportunity to visit Vietnam? You know, I have not. And actually I, I wanted to go. So, it's, there's never been a great opportunity because I've been in school no. <laughs> for an insane amount of my adult life. But um, my, uh, we were, I was going to go, I think we were going to go more recently, but then the pandemic happened and no one was going anywhere. For right. A while. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and then we, I think we're going to take a family trip um, in the next like two years to Vietnam to, to see everything. So um, I haven't been, and I had that was also very difficult for me to write about the scenes in Vietnam because I really had to like watch videos and and read articles about it and things like that. So um, any any scenes set in Vietnam are completely made up from my imagination. And like the the story of the um, grandmother and and mother, the boat, you know fleeing on the boat is that mm -hmm. something that actually happened in your family um well so my mother did she was one of the many people who fled vietnam um, on a boat um but the actual the pirates uh getting on the boat and you know attacking everyone um that was that didn't happen to her, but I did, I, that was inspired by a New York Times article that I'd read. It was, it was a, a news article from, um, I think maybe it was either from like 1980 or right or before that, mm -hmm. but it was about, um, these pirates that had, you know, gone on this ship on this boat fleeing Vietnam, Saigon and, uh, attacking everyone. And I thought that that was, um, like, horrible yeah, to read about but yeah. it was also so 
interesting, like, that I was learning about this from, like, this old news article. Like, it was, like, a, you know, I, you can go back into the New York Times archives and, like, read all these news articles. So I was I, I was inspired to write about it because I, I felt like, you know, otherwise these are lost to history. These stories are yeah, kind of yeah. just forgotten. Wow. Well, Elizabeth, before we run out of time, would you please read from Daughters of the New Year for us? Yes, I would love to. Um, so I'm going to read from a chapter, um, chapter 11, which is from Ju's perspective. She's the youngest daughter. Um, and we are at a, a Vietnamese New Year festival. So I'll just read a portion from that. In a strip mall painted a shade of golden sand, Red Dragon Restaurant almost disappeared between a jeweler and a Vietnamese video store. Both facades adorned in multiple flashing neon signs. The humble but popular lunch spot was run by a couple who specialized in hand-cut egg noodles. It was Chu's favorite restaurant, but she hated going there with her family because she couldn't correctly pronounce the food she wanted to order. The word for egg noodles, me, dipped much lower in its pronunciation than True could ever properly manage. When the adults around her corrected or reset what she had tried to say, it was always with an air of ghastly disbelief, as if saying me half an octave higher than she should have was a sin. She was turning seven this year, but already her lips could not hold the sounds right, and they never came out the way she thought they would. She mixed up inflections and words and ideas. What she learned in school and what she heard in every other space melted together. When she said me, the word floated from her mouth, warped and deformed. The older she got, the more she overthought it, the worse it all sounded. During, during Lunar New Year, Red Dragon had the best Mulan dance. People from all over town came to see it, and the restaurant put out a wonderful spread to welcome prosperity and good fortune. They were saying goodbye to Year of the Dog and ushering in Year of the Pig. Ju and Yi were dressed in matching clothes, pleated linen dresses with a square lace neckline and puffy sleeves. Their collars were adorned with handmade rosettes. Yi's dress was yellow and Ju's was red, lucky colors for set. Trap, who was 15, wore thrift store jeans and a holy Better Than Ezra t-shirt. The pink and blue tie-dye laces on her were doled from dirt. In fact, they were late to the set celebration because Track and their mother had gotten into an argument about what she was wearing. Why don't you wear the new dress I got you, their mother said. I don't want to, Track said. Please, Mom. You want to wear old pants, old shirt. It has holes in it and tennis shoes. Why don't you wear the new shoes I bought you? I like my shoes. They look cool. Track looked reluctant to continue arguing. You don't care about your family, said Swan in a swirl of panic. Bring bad luck on us by fighting with me about your clothes. I'm not fighting with you, Track said, but still did not explicitly agree to change her clothes. You weren't supposed to fight or disagree during the new year. Track did not budge, and so Swan let it go. What was worse, her daughter looking like trash at one New Year's festival 
or casting the whole year of the pig in the dark shadow of their argument. She could not control Trax's shoes, but she could stop them from arguing. Swan wore a new red alyai and hoped that it would help make up for this lapse in good nature. Drew hid under her mother's bed and listened to this entire fight. Her new dress, which she had worn without protest, was now covered in dust. Upon entry at Red Dragon, the children were given a gift bag full of toys and red and gold foil envelopes full of money from the Vietnamese Community Association. Even Trek, a teenager, got a goodie bag full of plastic trinkets and money. These kinds of celebrations had a tendency to self-segregate. Chu and Yi exchanged some of their toys with the other kids, cousins and the children of their parents' friends. They ran around Red Dragon and got on the empty stage to dance. There was a reckless freedom in the restaurant as parents mingled and drank and their children took advantage of the rare lack of supervision. Trax sat with a small gang of teenagers who all pretended to sulk, but would be loath to admit they found it all exciting. Trax and a girl named Linda amused themselves with cartoonish plastic with a cartoonish plastic boy that peed when you filled him with water and pulled his plastic shorts down. They filled him bit by bit, suctioning tea or water from their cups with straws and releasing it into the toy's cavity. When they pulled down his pants, water squirted from the hole in the smooth plastic expanse of his pelvis, and Track and Linda laughed, flicking water onto each other. Neither Ni nor Chu had received one of these toys in their bags. Go ask Track if we can play with hers, said Ni. What if she says no, said Chu? Tell her both she and Linda already have one and they can share, said Ni. You tell her, said Chu. If you ask her, then I'll give you any of the toys from my bag that you want, said Yi. So Chu went over to the teenager's table and, tap, and tapped Track on the shoulder. What do you want, Track said. When Chu asked her for the toy, Track looked at Linda expectantly, who responded before Track could make a decision. Yeah, go ahead. I'm bored with these toys now anyway. I'm going to go find my little brother. I'll see you outside for the dance. As Linda walked away, her long black hair swung back and forth with her lip, with her hips. What the hell, said Trek. What did I do, said Chu. I was in the middle of something and you interrupted. And now Linda left and is bored, said Trek. She took the peeing toy and shoved it violently into her paper bag. You can't have it. But you have to share with us, said Chu. I don't have to do anything, she said her chair screeching as she pushed away from the table in search of Linda. Chu couldn't believe this. What was wrong with Track, anyway? She had been moodier as of late, but she rarely lost her temper or spoke to her younger siblings like this. And she always shared her things, even through complaints, sighs, or eye rolls. Drew decided she would tell her mother, who would straighten Track's attitude right out. She stalked over to where Swan stood with another adult. All of their parents loved to stand back and talk about their children, saying terrible things about them in underhand bragging. Van has no friends, said May to Swan. I'm worried about him. He spends all, all his time doing school, school work. He's number one in his class. I said, Van, you need to spend time with friends. Don't have to be the best at everything all the time. That's so nice Van can be top of his class when he's only seven years old. I tell my daughter, Track, she needs to spend less time with her friends. 
too, because high school is much harder. She has so many, but I guess if she still has all A's, it's okay to have friends, one said. <laughs> Chu watched this conversation unfold while waiting patiently for her mother to notice her. What is it? Swan asked her. Is this your youngest? May asked. She had a frozen smile on her face. She's so cute. Child, how old are you? The words her mother and this woman were saying were rapid fire, although True understood them perfectly well. It was hard to explain, like watching subtitles superimposed over the sounds coming from their mouths. Say hello. Be polite, Swan said. How old are you? May asked again, pinching True's cheeks. I'm six and a half, she said in English. Oh, she doesn't speak Vietnamese, May said eyes wide. Oh my goodness, you didn't teach her? I did, said Swan. Pink tinged her cheekbones. She knows how to speak Vietnamese. Answer her properly, Chu. Somehow, Chu knew what they were saying, their Vietnamese morphing into her brain into understanding. But when she tried to think of the specific phrase herself, the words for I am six, she could not accomplish the simplest act of translation. All my children know Vietnamese. I always make them speak it at home, May said with a condescending laugh. Swan was the one now with a frozen smile. She turned her back on her daughter to continue conversing with the woman, and she recognized this as a dismissal. They gathered in the parking lot, firecrackers popping and hissing against cracked pavement. True stuffed her fingers in her ears because of the sound it made. The sound of it made her body want to curl up somewhere hidden and safe. From inside the restaurant, the undulating bodies of two dragons snaked their way among the crowd. A man put his whole body into the beating of a large drum. The dragons, with their flapping mouths, fluttering feathers, their bulbous eyes, got closer to the audience. They jerked back and forth, threatening to knock kids and elderly over, but staying just far enough away. A man in a moon-shaped smiling mask hopped between the dragons. A ripple of laughter through the crowd as the man, with his paper mache mask, pretended to stumble, tumble, and mime laughter by patting his large belly. The clownish man was terrifying. He approached each child, getting suddenly near their faces in what Chu took as an act of intimidation. Every child found him to be delightful, engaging in his dance, laughing, and running after him like an endearing uncle. Chu knew she was next. He walked towards her in a zigzag, labored and drunkenly, but toward her all the same. The drums beat louder. A new set of firecrackers exploded and popped and sizzled against the ground. She looked at Ni, who stood next to her with an anticipatory grin on her face, hands balled up into fists. She had always loved attention, and this cartoonish little man guaranteed all eyes would be on them. How did you escape? She saw her parents standing next to each other with some other adults laughing and clapping like nothing was like nothing was amiss. Ungdia stood right in front of her now. His mask was painted an unsettling shade of orange. It glistened in the afternoon sun. He stooped down to eye level with her, dragons dancing on either side of him, looming above and casting a wavering shadow above her. Their cartoonish faces, bulging eyes and grotesquely flapping mouths were monstrous and menacing. She did not feel a sliver of good fortune from these beasts, despite everyone's insistence that they were the bringers of luck. I think I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. And that was E.M. Tron reading from Daughters of the New Year. So in the few minutes we have left, um, 
one real quick question about another kind of recurring, not theme exactly, but object um, that I think may have been part of the inspiration for you for writing this book, and that is the trophy. Yes. So the trophy is, um, well, it's based on a real trophy. So my own mother uh, was a beauty queen in Vietnam, and she has this gigantic silver trophy that's in our living room. Um, and I've, it's always been there. I've always, you know, it's always been a part of our lives. And I, it wasn't until uh, I became an adult, though, and I was in a creative writing workshop um, writing an essay for my creative nonfiction class that I decided to use uh, this object as the center of my essay. And I, 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 I didn't, you know, I never really considered it that interesting before because it was so commonplace in our house. But um, when I started writing about it, I realized I didn't really know that much about the trophy and, or about the pageant or anything um, about my mom's experience with it. And uh, it really, in, I embarked on this journey of, of shame and, and realization about, you know, all the things about my family I didn't really know. So the trophy in the book is slightly different. It is, uh, it's not a, it's not the original trophy or exactly one-to-one, you know, the trophy of, from my mom. Um, but it is, uh, you know, Swan is a beauty queen and she takes this kind of burden with her in the U S she, she holds that memory as a, um, something to aspire to, or she holds on to the memory as a nostalgia, right? And so she creates this faith trophy out of um, a plastic, one of those plastic trophies that you can buy at like a trophy store. And she, you know, she, you, she keeps it in her house as like a reminder. And so it, it, it serves as the, a visual motif throughout. It kind of pops up again and again. Right. Now, did you find out more about your mother's actual trophy and her experience? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, my mother at the time was very, I, I asked her about it and she, you know, I, I kind of had to pry the information <laughs> from her. <laughs> because the thing that, the obvious thing is if she escaped Vietnam on, at the fall of Saigon, how in the world was she able to bring it with her? Yeah, you know, this is one of the great mysteries <laughs> of my life. Um <laughs> She did not take it with her on the boat. And she says, you know, it's funny when I asked her, I was like, mom, how did you get this trophy to, to the U S and she was like, I told you many times how I got it to the U S which is completely untrue. She never told me, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I kind of pride her. I, I, I kept asking her and she was like, you know, uh, you know, I told you a neighbor brought it over later. And so that's as much information as I have about how it got there. I don't know which neighbor. I don't know what year it was brought over. Um, so it is kind of the still mysterious thing that's in my life that my mom doesn't really talk about that much. But um, I did learn more about the pageant itself. It was, it, it ended up, um, you know, it was a real pageant. It was this thing that my mom made up. It was a, uh, it was this, um, pageant put on by a Japanese textile company called uh, Tejin Tetaron, I think it was called. And the winner of the pageant um, got to go, got a trip to Japan, and they got all these prizes and everything like that. And it, my whole life, I always thought that my mother had won the pageant. But actually, the truth was that she had been first runner-up, and another woman had won the pageant. But my mom uh, was upset about 
this other woman winning because one of the prerequisites to entering the pageant was that you had to be a certain age and you had to not be married or have children. And so this, the woman who won did actually have children, but she hid that fact from the, the committee, um, but she won anyway. So my mother views herself as this kind of like slighted or she was robbed <laughs> of, of, of being the winner of the pageant. So I think that, you know, she, in, in her mind, she is the true winner. And so she always told me that she'd won this pageant. And um, when she told me that I was like, I was floored. It was like, it changed everything about what I thought I knew. And, <laughs> and, and when I really looked at the, at the trophy, what the trophy actually said was that my mother, that she had won first runner up. So with it, this information had been like in front of my face my whole life, but because I had been, I'd never really looked. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't know. So, yeah. So I, you know, I was writing about this trophy felt just really natural and um, it had, it had great symbolic significance. And, and yes, and um, throughout the, and throughout the book, it has great symbolic significance too. Yes. So <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us today. We're out of time. I think we could go another hour without running out of conversation. <laughs> but, yes, but, we're, sure. but time's up. So um, I, are you working on another book? I am. So I'm currently working on a book. It was the first book that I had worked on that no one read. Um, but it's, <laughs> I'm completely rewriting it. It's about uh, sorority girls in the South and... I'm in creating like a fictional town in Northern Louisiana and um, just, I just find secret societies like that so fascinating. And, um, you know, again, another book about women and the internal politics uh, and, you know, relationships between women. Mm. Well, we'll look for, look forward to that. And Daughters of the New Year, E.M. Tron, great book. Thank you so much and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye.